0: How bad off before God is the non-Christian? Tonight's study is on a doctrine that sometimes is neglected in the Christian church, the doctrine of total depravity. Total depravity is not a teaching from Scripture that non-Christians are as bad as they can be because we know... Uh, non-Christian neighbors that are kind and true to their spouses and philanthropic and very nice. Total depravity is the Bible's teaching that the non-Christian is as bad off before God without Christ as they possibly can be. And there are some meanings of total depravity that I'm going to move through this evening and some models of total depravity the Bible gives us. And I'll just tell you, we're going to be surfing through a lot of scripture verses, so get your looking out fingers moving with me tonight. The first meaning of total depravity of a non-Christian being as bad off before a holy God without Christ as possible is the Bible's teaching that the non-Christian is under sin. Go with me to Galatians three. Galatians chapter three tells us that the non-believer, the unsaved person, is under sin. Galatians 3.22, but the scripture has shut up all men under sin, that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ may be given to those who believe. The person who is not yet a believer is shut up under sin. Secondly, second meaning of total depravity is that the person who is a non-Christian is spiritually dead. There are people that you will transact with this week, that you will perhaps live with this week, work with this week, that are spiritually dead as a doorpost, but they're very much alive physically. To see this, go with me to Romans 5, please. Romans 5, verse 12. The non-Christian, in the eyes of heaven, the most important eyes there are, the non-Christian is spiritually dead. Romans 5, verse 12. Therefore, just as through one man, that's Adam, sin entered into the world and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. One of the consequences of Adam and Eve falling into sin was death. Spiritual death, separation from a meaningful relationship with God. Physical death, the separation of the soul and the spirit from the body. And eternal death, the resurrected body, soul, and spirit being literally, spatially, separated from God's presence in a literal hell. And so we're seeing that the meaning of total depravity of a Christian, non-Christian, excuse me, being as bad off before God as he or she can be is that they're under sin, and they 're spiritually dead, third, they are under condemnation John three and verse eighteen as you 're turning to john three eighteen of course the well known verse in ephesians two one also teaches that the, the non Christian is spiritually dead, but you were dead in your trespasses and sins, it says in ephesians two one Now this third meaning of total depravity is The non-Christian is under condemnation. John 3, verse 18. John 3, verse 18 says, Jesus' words, He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Under condemnation. Still in John 3, look at verse 36. He who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. The person who doesn't see life is under condemnation. Still with the model of under condemnation, go to 2 Thessalonians. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, remember I said we'd be moving around tonight, Second Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 6 through 10. Second Thessalonians 1, 6 through 10. For after all, it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you, And to give relief to you who are afflicted, and to us as well, when the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God, to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, and these will pay the penalty of eternal destruction, away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power, when he comes to be glorified in his saints on that day, and to be and to be marveled at among all who have believed, for our testimony to you was believed. What is the scriptural model for the non-Christian? He's under sin. She's spiritually dead. He's under condemnation. And fourth, under the power of Satan. Under the power of Satan. Colossians 1, verse 13 For he delivered us, that is the Colossian born-again believers, for he delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son. This is saying that the person who has not yet been delivered in salvation through Jesus Christ remains in the domain of darkness under the power of Satan. 1 John Near the back of the New Testament, of course, 1 John 5 and 19. We're seeing the models the Bible presents for the non-Christian in total depravity. 1 John 5, 19. And we know that we are of God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. That nice neighbor you have? who mows your lawn when you're on vacation, who gives $100 to the United Way, who sings Christmas carols on the front of parliament building, is totally depraved. And the reality is that that person without Christ lies in the power of the evil one. The evil one doesn't want anybody in that sad situation to realize it. And so he deludes. He calls freedom what is bondage. He calls joy, which is circumstantial happiness. And so these are the models under sin, spiritually dead, under condemnation, under the power of Satan. And the fifth uh, meaning I want to give to you is that they are lost. They are lost. Ephesians, 2 Verse 12. Ephesians 2 and verse 12. To see that God calls the non Christian in a state of total depravity lost. Ephesians 2, start at 11. Therefore, remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh who are called uncircumcision by those so called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands, remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Lost. Go with me to Luke 15. Three parables. Luke 15. A parable para, alongside, bole, to throw. A parable throws alongside an earthly truth with a heavenly meaning. A parable is an, heavenly, an earthly truth with a heavenly meaning that stands in need of interpretation. That's a parable. There are three parables in Luke chapter 15 that Jesus gave to cite and to explain and to illustrate the state of total depravity and lostness For the unbeliever, there is a lost sheep. Verse 4. What man among you, if he has a hundred sheep and has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open pasture and go after the one which is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. Verse 8: Second parable. Or what woman? If she has ten silver coins and loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and search carefully for, until she finds it. And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin which I had lost. A lost sheep, a lost coin, and then a lost son in the story of the prodigal son. It is interesting and instructive to me, and I slip up on this sometimes, that the word and label unsaved does not appear in the Bible. The Bible never calls a lost person unsaved, but lost, but under sin, but under spiritually death, under condemnation, under the power of Satan, lost. Now, in the state of being as bad off before God as one possibly can be as an unregenerate person and a non-Christian, what we have here is the image of God being effaced but not erased. Do you have something effaced? If there is a sculpture, a statue in a park, and kids come along and I hope this never happens and take spray paint and put it all over that bronze statue of that person, they efface the image of the statue but they do not erase it. You can still see that it is a statue of a founding father of the United States or whatever the case might be. And so the state of total depravity and being lost effaces the image of God in a human being but does not erase it. Go with me, please, to Genesis 9. Genesis 9, verse 6. Genesis 9, verse 6. Whoever sheds man's blood... By man his blood shall be shed, for in the image of God he made man. When a person sheds another person's blood that we see in the Bahamas frequently on the news, unfortunately, that person who killed is still in the image of God, but total depravity has um, effaced that image but not erased it. James Three, verse 9. James 3, verse 9. Talking about the tongue in verse 8 and then moving on to verse 9. With it we bless our Lord and Father and with it we curse men who have been made in the likeness of God. If we are sloppy and careless and aggressive with our tongues, we curse men, be they Saved or lost men because both saved and lost men are created in the likeness of God. What does it mean to be in God's image? Well, among other things, it means that there's one of us with three parts, like the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There's one of you with three parts, body to allow yourself to interact with your environment through your senses, soul, your personality, your intellect, emotion, and your will, and your spirit that is made to commune with God in worship, love, and service. What does it mean to be made in the image of God? Among other things, it means that you have the ability to create beauty. And there are many other implications of being made in God's image to live eternally in heaven or hell. And the image of God in the lost person, the non-Christian, has been effaced by sin but not erased. The next thing I'd like you to know in this study on total depravity is persons cannot initiate their own salvation, but they can receive it by faith in Christ. In a state of total depravity, in a state of being as bad off before a holy God as a person can be, no one can initiate, start their own salvation. God is the author of salvation from eternity past. Next, fallen persons, totally depraved persons, are like Adam and Eve were after the fall. You recall that Eve first ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We're going to Genesis 3 as I context it with you. Genesis 3, Eve took of the fruit, but Adam was right beside her, silent, Eve ate of the fruit. She handed it to her husband, and he chose to eat as well, and they fell into sin. Sin entered the human situation for the very first time. Death and all the ramifications of sin came to the human race through Adam and Eve's fall into sin in the Garden of Eden. But what was true of Adam and Eve after they had fallen into sin? This is still true of the person that is lost and without the saving grace of Christ. Number one, they heard and they understood God in the garden. They heard and they understood God. See that with me in verses 9 and 10 of Genesis 3. And then the Lord called to the man and said to him, where are you? Of course God wasn't looking for information. He knew exactly where they were. He was asking the question for them to fess up to where they were and why they were there. Then the Lord God called to man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of thee in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself. In the state of fallenness, they could hear God in the garden, and they understood God. Secondly, they were conscious of their sin. Verse 7 Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. By the way, that is religion. To sew fig leaves over our sin, to think that it will take away our shame, that's religion. But in this chapter, God provided so much more. He killed an animal, shed an animal's blood, and gave them skins of animals to cover their nakedness. That's a picture of the Lord Jesus laying down his life for sinners, shedding his blood that we could be clothed in his righteousness. So a fallen person Now is like Adam and Eve were in the garden after the fall. The fallen person is capable of hearing and understanding God. They are conscious of their sin. And third, they even spoke to God. Adam and Eve spoke to God in their fallen shame and hiding. Verse 10. And he said, I heard the sound of thee in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked so I hid myself, skipping down to verse 12. And the man said, the woman who thou gavest to be with me, she gave me from the tree and I ate. Buck passing. Blame shifting. And men and women have been doing that and honing that sad skill ever since. My mother, you should have seen how I was raised These are the meanings of total depravity, and let's see the models. Scripture gives us some models of total depravity that are helpful to us in praying for the lost and in loving the lost, uh, crying over the lost, having spiritual heartburn for the lost, spiritual heart attack for the lost, and spiritual tachycardia to do something about getting the gospel to the lost. The first model I want to share with you is that God calls the person without Christ dead and needing life. Ephesians 2, 1, I referenced the verse, but let's go there again, please. Ephesians 2 and verse 1, writing to the believers at Ephesus, the Spirit of God through Paul wrote, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins, spiritually dead. The lost person is dead in need of life. Colossians, Colossians 2 and verse 13 teaches the same thing. Colossians 2 and verse 13 says, and when you were dead, In your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us and which were hostile to us, and he's taken them out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. I've taught you before on Good Friday that when a criminal was sentenced to crucifixion, they were held in a cell before that took place, and they nailed on the door of the cell the capital crimes the person was guilty of, and Jesus Christ took all the sins that we had and have, and will have, and they were nailed to the cross, and he paid for every single one of them because we were dead and needing life. Second model of total depravity is that the person without Jesus Christ is sick and needing healing. Sick and needing healing. Luke 5, 31 Luke five thirty one, And Jesus answered and said to them, It is not those who are well who need a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. One might wonder, was the sickness Christ was referring to in verse 31, physical sickness? No, it wasn't. Verse 32, and his words there, make it very clear. It was spiritual sickness. Because he says in 32, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Jesus said that the person without salvation is spiritually sick, and we would say spiritually terminally ill. And so the person without Christ needs the healing, working of Christ and his salvation. 1 Peter 2, verse 24, teaches the same thing. 1 Peter 2, verse 24, Twenty-four. And he himself, Christ, bore our sins in his body on the cross that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds you were healed. Some believers teach that the shed blood of Christ can be applied to cancer. You'll never hear me pray for the blood of Christ to be applied to cancer or epilepsy or any other physical disease because the, the, the disease in view here is spiritual sin disease. That's what the blood of Christ came to cover and to remedy. Physical illness, we pray for the healing of people with cancer and epileptic seizures and other maladies. Sure, we pray that God would mercifully and powerfully heal people, but don't claim the blood of Christ over physical disease. It's not in Scripture. The sickness that is in the model of total depravity is a spiritual sickness, which in the end is far more serious than a physical sickness third model of depravity dead needing life sick needing healing poor needing god's riches second corinthians eight. 8 second corinthians 8 and verse 9 for you know the grace of our lord jesus christ that though he was rich yet for your sake he became poor that you through his poverty might become rich This is not a name it, claim it verse. This is not teaching us that it's God's will for every child of his to be materially wealthy. That's a message around the island, have you noticed? That is not what this verse is teaching. This verse is teaching that spiritual poverty is remedied by Jesus willingly becoming spiritually poor in the incarnation so that he could give us riches that are spiritual, justification, sanctification, glorification, forgiveness, heaven, hope, leading, purpose, direction, love, and all the fruit of the spirit. But there's more. Total depravity is not only death needing life and sickness needing healing and poverty needing God's riches but it's also defilement needing cleansing Titus 1:5 You know you're going too fast when you don't hear the pages of the Bible turning anymore Titus 1:15 I should say Titus 1:15 To the pure, that's the born again. To the pure, all things are pure, but to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their mind and their conscience are defiled. The person outside of Christ and his salvation is defiled, not yet pure. Both in their mind and in their conscience, they are defiled, they need cleansing. But there's more. The person without Christ is in darkness needing light. John 8, verse 12. John 8, verse 12. John 8, verse 12, Jesus teaches. And again, therefore Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in the darkness but shall have the light of life. When you know Christ as Savior, as I'm convinced most all of you, if not all of you, do tonight, then you do not have to walk in the darkness like the person without Christ. You have the light of the world. You have the person and the finished work of Christ. You have the Holy Spirit indwelling you. You have the light of Scripture. But the person without Jesus, the lost person, is still in the darkness, groping around. You know what it's like in the middle of the night when you want a drink of water and you don't want to turn on the light to wake up your spouse and you're groping around, feeling the walls and stubbing your toes and you don't have any light until you open the refrigerator and the light of the refrigerator shows you what's going on? People without Jesus are still in the darkness. Just and need light. People without Jesus are dead, needing life. They're sick, needing healing. They're poor, needing God's riches. They're defiled, needing God's cleansing. They're in darkness, needing light. And last, they are imprisoned, needing release. Isaiah. Isaiah 42, verse 7. Isaiah 42, verse 7. To open blind eyes, to bring out prisoners from the dungeon, and those who dwell in darkness from the prison, I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not give my glory to another, nor my praise to graven images. It's very clear that God, through Isaiah, taught Judah before captivity, That the person without a personal relationship of faith with the living God has blind eyes. They are prisoners in a dungeon. They are living on the street address called darkness. And they are in prison. But they think they're free. The drug addict thinks he's free. The prostitute thinks she's free. The embezzler thinks he's free. The rich person thinks they're free. When we were in Dallas working for very wealthy people, as Beth, the governess, and I always said, that made me the governor. (laughs) She was a nanny or a governess or an au pair, whatever you want to call it. And we worked for these very wealthy people, and that was when I first understood the bondage of wealth, material wealth. The lady of the house was not a believer. She was terrified terrified every day that she or her daughter would be abducted and held for ransom. The things that you would think would make life easier and more pleasant really caused terror in her heart. Her neighborhood of very affluent people in very large mansions was patrolled by a private police force that carried shotguns in their cars. You see, even the person who is materially rich, really, if they don't know Christ, if they haven't been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, if they haven't been refocused to serve and to glorify God, they're in bondage. What does the stock page say this morning? What's the Dow Jones? What's the value of gold? It's not a sin to be wealthy, of course. But money is a good servant but a lousy master. And so the models of total depravity, people without Christ are dead, needing life, they're sick, needing healing, they're poor, needing God's riches, they're defiled, needing cleansing, they're in darkness, needing light, they're in prison, needing release. Let's go on. What are the effects of original sin? Original sin is when Adam and Eve fell into sin in Genesis 3 in the Garden of Eden, but their fall impacted all of us through the transmission of a propensity to sin, a bent to rebel against God that is inherited from our parents. And so what are the effects on us of original sin? Well, let's start with the effects on the individual person. Let's start with the effects of original sin on the mind. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 4. 2 Corinthians 4 and verse 4 let me pick it up at three and even if our gospel is veiled it is veiled to those who are perishing in whose case the god of this world little g god of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving that they might not see the light of the glory of the of the gospel of the glory of christ who is the image of god now watch this The effects of original sin on the individual's mind is it's blinded. And except God intervene and assist and open the eyes of the mind of the lost person, it's not opening. That's dire. That's serious. But there's more. The effects of original sin are not just on the mind. They are on the will. Romans 6 verse 16, please. Romans 6, verse 16. Do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one to whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness? When you go through Romans 6, which is a key chapter Of the scriptures. If you had a chapter to memorize only one, I would say memorize Romans 6. When you look at Romans 6, sin is always in the singular, not the plural. A sin, not sins. Remember, I was uh candidating here, and what's that root you have? Cassava? Yeah. I said that singular sin is cassava, root below the ground, and sins flourish above the ground, the green part. You don't have sins unless you have a root of sin singular and so the effects of original sin on the will here are that we are except for God intervening we want to because of the law of sin and death we want to disobey God but there's more the effects of original sin on the mind on the human will and on our feelings even let's go to Romans 1 while we're in Romans Romans 1 28 and 29, speaking of the downward devolution of people who reject God and do not respond to him, the light he gives, and he gives them over to themselves. It says in Romans 1, 28 and 29, and just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper, being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossips, gossips in that list. Gossip is in that list, along with murder, must be serious. Slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents. Disobedient to parents is in that list, with murder. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful, And though they know the ordinance of God that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but they also give hearty approval to those who practice them. So when original sin hits you like a freight train, as it does for everybody who's born, it affects their feelings, but also affects their heart. Uh, Genesis 6, 5. You with me? You with me? Good. Genesis 6, 5. And then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And God said, I'm going to do a global flood and wipe out everybody on earth except family Noah. Salvation in the Bible is always by grace through faith, but in different dispensations, how God asked people to demonstrate faith in him changes. So for Noah and his family, they had to build an ark and they never seen rain never seen a boat. God gives them the blueprints and they build this boat. Can you imagine they were ridiculed, mocked, laughed at, scorned? What are you doing building a boat? What's a boat? God said there's going to be a global flood. What's a flood? Water all over the earth. And so it says that the, in verse 5 of Genesis 6, And the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. The effects of original sin, Adam and Eve's sin in Genesis 3, has come all the way through. Everyone born of a woman since, which is all of us, that it affects the heart. The heart is desperately wicked. Who can know it? Jeremiah 17.9. Now that's the effects of original sin on the individual. Let's quickly look at the effects of original sin on the whole human race. Physical death never was in the picture until Adam and Eve sinned. Romans 5.12, we were here a little earlier in this study, but let's see it again. Romans 5. In verse 12. Therefore, just as through one man, again that's Adam. Isn't that interesting that God cites Adam, although Eve ate first? Because men are to spiritually, in a servant-like way, lead their wives to be a spiritual dome of protection and love. And here he was by the tree of the knowledge of good and evil right in the middle of the garden. He knows what God said about its fruit, and his wife was looking at the fruit, its beauty, its It's worth for nutrition. And he didn't say, let's get out of here. And isn't it interesting that God put the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the middle of the garden, not in the back corner they never faced? Because he wanted the moral choice for his first created people to be real and consistent. And so here it is in Romans 5.12. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. So physical death. um, came into the human situation where it never had been before because of original sin. But then there was also the transmission, as I've been alluding to, of a sin nature. A sin nature is a bent that human beings have to rebel against God, a propensity, a tendency to want to go our own way. You never notice with your young children, parents, you never had to teach those children to say no. Most kids say no before they say yes our kids did don't look at me that way your kids did too (laughs) part of original sin on the human race excuse me was that we inherit this tendency this likelihood to sin the great confessional psalm of King David after he had sinned with Bathsheba and he came to his senses after Nathan the prophet went to him and said you're the man Psalm 51, verse 5 is what I want to show you. In his confession and admission of his sin to God, that's what confession is, calling sin what God calls sin. I hope you're up to date on that. D.L. Moody said, keep short accounts with God when it comes to your sin. David confessed his sins to God in the Psalm 51. And in verse 5, something very interesting theologically. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity. I was born in iniquity. That doesn't mean that the act of giving birth is sin, of course. And in sin, my mother conceived me. That doesn't mean that intimate relations between a husband and a wife are sin in any way, shape, or form. But what he's saying is that I received a tendency to rebel against God from my birth. From my very birth. People who think that babies are born innocent don't understand the Bible. Now, I believe that babies who are miscarried or aborted go to heaven because of the grace and mercy of the Lord Jesus and his sacrifice. But they're not born morally neutral. That's an effect of original sin. This transmitted sin nature. Also, an inherited tendency to be at odds with the Holy Spirit. Galatians Five, seventeen. By the way, we're getting near the end of the study, so hang in there. Galatians five, verse seventeen. Galatians five, verse seventeen. In this chapter, we see that in verse let's pick it up at 16. But I say walk or live by the Spirit, capital S, and you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. Apparently, walking controlled by the Holy Spirit is the opposite of living out the desires of the flesh. Living out the desires of the flesh is the opposite of being walking and living in the Holy Spirit's control. Verse 17, for the flesh sets its desire against the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit against the flesh, for these are in opposition to each other so that you may not do the things that you please. Here's the situation, that when you're redeemed, you're given life out of spiritual death, you're given regeneration, you're given the Holy Spirit, but you still have flesh. One of the things we might wonder about is why would that be? God could do anything Uh, when he saved us, why wouldn't he just excise, cut out, eradicate our flesh? Because we wouldn't trust him and need him as much as we do with our flesh. Because we wouldn't have sympathy and empathy for persons who are run by their flesh without Christ as Savior. Because we wouldn't pray as much for our own sanctification if we had no flesh. So God, for his own purposes, leaves us with flesh that creates a civil war situation within every Christian. And the civil war situation within every Christian is that the Spirit of God leads and produces His fruit if we let Him, and our flesh is in opposition. The flesh will never help us to be spiritual. The flesh will never be our strength to do the will of God. The flesh is a chameleon, it hides. Some flesh actually looks good to the outside observer, most flesh looks awful. But flesh is flesh. And so, what original sin for the human race is that we all inherited this tendency to be at odds with the Holy Spirit before conversion and after conversion. What a contrast between the, the deeds and the fruit of the Spirit in 22 of this chapter, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self control. Against such things, there is no law. But previous, through the deeds of the flesh, what an opposite. What a contrast, verse 19. Now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions. This is ugly envying, drunkenness, carousing, and the things like these of which i forewarned you just as I have forewarned you that those who practice such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. So part of original sin on all of us as a human race is that the default position we have is that we are in our flesh and it's against the Holy Spirit. Two more things, then we're done. Part of original sin's impact on the human race as a whole is an inherited state of being a sinner. We sin because we're sinners. We sin because we're sinners. Ephesians two, one to three. Ephesians 2, 1 to 3. We've hit Ephesians 2, 1 three times now. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature, by nature, children of wrath, even as the rest. We inherit a state of being a sinner as part of a consequence of original sin in the Garden of Eden. And last for tonight, original sin impacts all humans that we inherit the need for new birth. I mean, if we're spiritually dead, if we're sinners, if we're depraved, if we're bad off as we possibly can be before a holy God, that does it not make sense that we need to be born over again John 3 verse 7 you know the story Jesus a backwater obscure rabbi messiah miracle worker is engaged in conversation by a reverend right doctor rabbi in the seminary at Jerusalem Named Nicodemus. And old Nick wouldn't even come by day because he was a little too ashamed to say that this unschooled rabbi could teach him anything, but there was a hunger in Nicodemus's heart for truth that God put in his heart. So by night he went to Jesus. He said the following. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews, and this man came to him by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do the the signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered and said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. I love how Jesus went right to it. Right to it. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he's old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? Well, that's a, that was a reasonable thought and question. He was thinking literally. Jesus answered truly, truly a second time. He said truly, truly, which means listen up. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. There's a lot of debate about what being born of water and the Spirit means. I believe in studying this in context and other places that being born of water is physical birth. You know when a lady's water breaks before delivering? So I think Jesus is saying here, you have to be born physically, but then you have to be born spiritually by the Holy Spirit. I like to say if you're, Uh, born once, you die twice. If you're born twice, you die once. You can think about that. Going on. Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is Spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. Jesus said to this theologian, this powerful and wealthy Pharisee, you need to be born again. We should never be ashamed of that term. It is Jesus' term. When he had one shot with this Nicodemus, he used the term. We should never be ashamed of the term or the concept of being born again. Because because of original sin, all of us, our default position is that we need new birth. We need to be born again. I was listening to one of my favorite preachers this afternoon, and it just fit nicely, that Alistair Begg was talking about the meanness of born-again Christians when it comes to lacking mercy for those who are totally depraved and lost in sin. I can't give you all the details, but Christopher Hutchins, one of this generation's most prolific writers as an atheist, an aggressive atheist, came down with throat cancer, terminal throat cancer. And a very malicious and mean-spirited and unloving and unkind person sent him a letter that said, of course you came down with throat cancer because you condemned and blasphemed God. Die of throat cancer and go to hell. And yet, the Savior said, come unto me all that you are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. We sing about it rescue the perishing, care for the dying, snatch them in pity from sin in the grave, weep or the erring one, lift up the fallen, tell them of Jesus, the mighty to save. Though they are slighting him still, he is waiting, waiting the penitent child to receive. Plead with them earnestly, plead with them gently, he will forgive if only they believe. Down in the human heart, Crushed by the tempter, feelings lie buried that grace can restore. Touched by a loving heart, wakened by kindness, cords that were broken will vibrate once more. Rescue the perishing, duty demands it. Strength for thy labor, the Lord will provide. Back to the narrow way. Patiently win them. Tell them, poor sinner, wanderer, a Savior has died. Lord, may we never forget what it was like to be lost. And may we lovingly tell others, how to be saved. We pray this, Lord Jesus, in your mighty and gracious name. Amen. Go and be his ambassador.